we have the baby boomer generation mm. and they're all about to hit this threshold where they're, I mean, wow. yeah, they're at risk and um, we're racing against the clock really. Hello, how are you? So my guest on the podcast today is arguably on the forefront of one of the largest epidemics that is about to sweep Western nations. He is an Alzheimer's researcher, specifically working on GABA neural networks within Alzheimer's disease. He is also one of the founders of the Straight From A Scientist Network, which works to communicate science and specifically degenerative brain disorders to academics and to the wider public as well. And today, my guest works with a clean slate, as I pretty much had no idea about Alzheimer's before this podcast, so he lays out the fundamentals such as what Alzheimer's disease is, who suffers from it, what we know about things like who is at risk, detection, diagnosis, prognosis, and treatment. And we also discuss the 21st century being the era of the brain, and what that means for philosophical concepts of the human race with a greater understanding of things like consciousness and mental illness. And as a fellow science communicator, we chat about the general concept of education, what the structure of education could or should be like, and how to get people more interested in different topics and how we can break some of the old time expectations of an academic or a researcher. I had a great time talking to him because he's a super smart dude and it's always good to speak to someone who knows a lot about a topic that you know next to nothing about. And it's also good to speak to someone who is following a similar path as yourself, specifically within science communication. So with that in mind, please welcome the very, very dedicated Connor Wonder. Mind-bending chemicals. I don't care, he wants to kill me. Idea of the scientist is like academic, fat, doesn't really exercise, doesn't really, you know, the physicist doesn't care about biology, the biologist doesn't care about psychiatry, they don't read anything else. I think that's sort of a classic picture that again is changing now, but that's probably a reflection of the perfection aspect. They 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 know their field and they're not going to branch out. What's the point? Well, it's a lack of time too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. um, I, I don't have the citation to back this up, but I did hear that like scientists on average live 10 years fewer. So I mean, they're 10 years shorter lives than, you know, their counterparts in mm. other fields. And one, I look around, one, I know that's because some of them are pulling ridiculous hours. Yeah, um, there especially are some PhDs, labs, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's some labs next door when I think I'm going in late and they're just there hanging out like they've been there all day. I go in late to turn off the scope or whatever it is. I'm in there at 10, 30, 11 p.m. and they're just hanging out like still doing their work. I, mm. How do you have time to exercise if you're doing that? How do you have time to eat right if you're doing that? Um, and they prioritize their science over everything else. It's a massive sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I was saying, I don't know that I would want to make those sacrifices if I didn't know that there would be uh, benefits down the road for society. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you need that motivation, at least yeah. um, from my perspective. So it's tough. I it's mean, it's tough to even be in other fields if you can't take care of yourself. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the thing. It's like, <clears throat> I think that's... Um, The time thing is definitely a factor. It's definitely a huge factor. But I think, you know, when we discuss things like uh, diminishing returns and whatever else, you know, those three additional hours that those folk have spent in the lab, would that time, you know, is that time well spent in those three additional hours after they've already done 10? Or could it have been better spent 
doing a 30 minute yoga session, going home, reading a book and getting a decent night's sleep or something like that. You know, it's hard. It's, it's hard because you can't really, you can't fully, you know, make numbers of that. It's kind of like a qualitative sort of reflection. But I know for me personally, like I, if, if I'm not exercising, I'm not operating. Like I can't, I feel like my head's going to explode. I just, I, I'm just not in the right mindset, you know, and, and I feel like, I feel like there's probably things that a lot of these scientists might be wanting to be doing and they should be doing it probably be good for their health, but they might not be doing it probably as well because a lot of the academic pressure, you know, there's this, this sort of old school thing that you see in medicine as well. Like we suffered. So you have to suffer too kind of crap. And not only that, when I'm out of lab, uh, I have this sinking feeling of guilt, (laughs) especially, I mean, you know, I'm I'm not trying to like blow puff myself up here, but Alzheimer's, my research field is super important and Mm. you know, everyone's racing for this cure. And I feel like if I'm not actively working towards this at any given time, I'm kind of like stealing from Alzheimer's patients, like the potential discovery that I could make in this moment and dealing with that has been a huge struggle in my life. Mm. But like you said, am I going to perform at optimal capacity if I haven't been eating well, if I haven't slept well, if I haven't exercised? No, absolutely not. I have like a three day rule for myself. If I, if I don't work out on that third day like of not going to the gym or running or whatever it is, uh, I start to get feelings of depression, anxiety, Definitely. you know, I haven't, I've never been diagnosed, but if you look up the symptoms, these are exactly what I'm feeling mm. on that third day and every subsequent day after that I would not exercise. So I made that a rule for myself, you know, no matter how much lab stuff I have on that third day, I, I have to go, <laughs> right? Mm. Um, I, I will start saying no to those extra experiments uh, if I haven't made that requirement because yeah. I mess up way more often um, yeah. it, on those weeks that I'm trying to do everything. Right. That's a that's a weird one, isn't it? Like that, um, you know, that so, that sort of voice in the back of your head kind of thing, and that's that's like that's kind of one of the biggest motivating factors. Like I know for me, like I'm all about a, a big factor in my life is discipline. Like if I I want to be doing this much studying each day. I want to be doing this much working out in the week. I want to be doing this, 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 and I'm killing myself. I'm so disappointed if I'm if I'm not doing it. And I, I, sometimes I go completely out my way to make sure I am doing those things. And there's huge benefits to this. Like discipline is a great thing. It makes your life easier, in my opinion. But there is times that pop up that sometimes you shouldn't do the hard thing. You shouldn't do the hard thing because. You are so burnt out because your sleep has been so affected or maybe, you know, even on an exercise point of view, you're feeling sore or whatever else and you could actually benefit from from a night's rest without doing anything. That's that's a hard that's a hard struggle. I know I know a lot of people sort of deal with the, the opposite aspect, getting up and actually doing things. But I think there is a lot of people out there, especially, again, people in your sort of field uh, in PhDs and stuff that have the, the opposite problem where it's like they're getting after it too much kind of thing. For sure. Yeah. I see that so often. <laughs> so one of my lab mates, I, I often tell him like, you need to go home and get some sleep. Like, this is ridiculous. Uh, you're yeah. a machine, but you shouldn't have to live like a robot. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You should, you're a machine, but you shouldn't actually have to be a machine. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, he's amazing. He's an inspiration, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I found it's just not sustainable. Right. Yeah. So I, I've done those long stints and um, I've gotten a decent amount of work done, but then I also start making those errors and then that mm, actually wastes mistake. resources and time. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, dealing with the guilt, it's uh, it's a never ending problem mm. <laughs> uh, and something you have to kind of come to terms with to take care of yourself. Mm. And again, where it might actually reflect back on um, 
almost like not a not a not putting your eggs in, in one basket kind of situation, but maybe if you are reading different things and uh, you know trying to get enjoyment out of other aspects of life, then maybe you um, you can reflect on these things probably a little bit better. Is, is a possibility. You know, you, you might be a, a bit broader in your mindset, um, and you know, you kind of said it before <clears throat> how uh, a lot of these genius science folks maybe aren't the most um, socially or emotionally intelligent. <laughs> you know, there's different. There's more than one type of intelligence, shall we say? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I get that. Like, I'm myself. You, you know, <laughs> I'm a podcaster now, but um, I. If you ask people who are close friends of mine, they wouldn't say I'm exactly a, a gifted orator or a conversationalist. Really? So uh, I've had to work at this really hard, and it's not something that comes naturally to me by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, fair point. Well, I guess you know it's cool to actually be able to reflect on that yourself and and make the point and try and actually make a difference. Um, I guess the other thing you mentioned before. Yeah, Alzheimer's research. Like I said to you when we were talking before this, like <laughs> I have, yeah, I'm such a clean slate. So this is a good opportunity for you to <laughs> sort of lay things out in a good way. I, what I do understand is Alzheimer's is a form of dementia. Correct? Is that the right way around? Yeah, and we dementia, can go ahead and get into the science. That <laughs> please do. Please do. Start off. Um, for sure. So Alzheimer's disease, part of the greater umbrella of dementias. Um, it's a neurodegenerative disease, as many dementias are. I think every dementia is really. And um, of course, the frontline symptoms being memory loss, confusion, uh, cognitive, uh, uh, basically cognitive dysfunction. Um, and we've all probably seen or met patients um, who are suffering from these things. If you go into any sort of elderly care home, maybe mm. people have um, elderly uh, family members that are kind of losing focus during conversations or even forgetting who they are, which is just terrifying, right? Um, kind of locked in this body. Um, and in many cases, I think these dementias are becoming more prevalent in the developing world because we're solving a lot of the problems that used to kill people mm. before these diseases took hold. Most of these dementias, um, aside from a few that hit people really, really early for genetic reasons, um, are age-related disorders. And uh, they're what uh, at least in Alzheimer's disease, there are two classes. Um, there's the sporadic Alzheimer's disease that it, it happens sporadically. It happens somewhat randomly. There are genetic risk factors for it, but for the most part, um, it, there is no one single cause or guarantee mm -hmm. for sporadic Alzheimer's. I mean, that's really the definition. There's no single thing that's going to guarantee you're going to get it. There are familial cases of Alzheimer's disease. Um, I don't want to discount those, but they're only one to 2% of the population. So there are people who have certain mutations that basically do guarantee that they'll get Alzheimer's disease fairly early on. Wow. And they've, um, you know, those families, we've looked at their genetics and, and we actually use those genetics to kind of look at mouse models and how, and, and mutate mice to model those people. But um, a huge gap in the field is definitely these sporadic AD patients, which actually are the massive bulk of the population. Mm. Um, and, and it all is tied down to aging in, in some way. Uh, people aren't really going to show symptoms of sporadic AD generally until 70 or 80 years of age. Um, and so as we age out our population, you know, people are talking about curing cancer in the next five to 10 years. That's going to be even more of a problem mm -hmm. because we're going to get people going into their hundreds, 120s, uh, you, you name it. Um, and you know, as, as we fix all these other problems, you know, people aren't dying of infection, people aren't dying of 
Um, well, heart disease is still a huge killer, but I think it'll, it'll continue to drop. Um, we're going to have this problem more and more. And like I said, that's what motivates me in and out of the lab, gives me a bit of that guilt because I know this, this massive problem is coming, especially in the United States. We have the baby boomer generation mm. and they're all about to hit this threshold where they're, I mean, wow. yeah, they're at risk and um, we're racing against the clock really. Yeah, literally because um, you're, you're suddenly about to have tons of prospective patients basically, right? About yep, to hit the uh, wall of it. Yeah. Exactly. And the frontline drugs that we have for Alzheimer's disease, um, they, they can buy you a few years. Uh, they can solve the disease progression for a little while, but at, as yet, they have, I mean, we have no cure. Um, we have no treatment that can really turn back the clock mm. um, for any substantial amount of time. You know, you can, again, you can improve quality of life for a couple mm -hmm. years, um, but it is really sad and it's, it's, you know, still very much a death sentence at this point. Um, mm -hmm. And, and almost, I mean, if you've spoken to someone with dementia, it, it seems like there's a, like a, I don't want to get like woo woo, but it seems like there's a soul there that's like trying to reach out, but mm. like they're starting to lose contact um, with the outside wow. world. Um, and I mean, to me, that's the most terrifying thing about it. Yeah. Um, is that you can lose your identity in the Literally, process. Yeah. 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 So what do you mean by that? Cause you know, you sort of termed it like neuro degeneration right so yes. what what exactly does that mean because aren't brains technically like slowly breaking down from the age of 30 or something like that anyway uh yes and no so um you know there's the uh common conception that your brain is developing until around age 25 i'm 26 about to be 27 so mm -hmm. um, you know theoretically my brain has stopped developing mm. um Neurodegeneration, as you said, yes, it is the it's the loss of neurons, it's the atrophy of their connections. So the, these the, these brains are falling apart. And if you look at a, an Alzheimer's brain versus a like a control patient, a normal healthy person of the same age, you'll see that the Alzheimer's brain has shrunken. That's undeniable. We know mm -hmm. for sure that's happening, and that's not limited to Alzheimer's. Um, like like you mentioned, there's other dementias. Um, there's other, other diseases in which that can happen. Mm. Now, after age 25, it's not like there's this break point or anything like yeah. that. Um, but what is happening while a brain is developing is one, um, when you're very young, there are a bunch of neurons growing and migrating to different places in the brain. Two, they're all forming connections, synapses. Um, they're insulating themselves. Uh, that's called myelination. It's kind of like the, you know, the rubber on your uh, phone charging cable. Okay. And that really helps neurons communicate efficiently, right? Okay. So if you had a bunch of exposed wires, um, there's, there's going to be some efficiency problems in the brain, for example. And, and some of these things that happen in development, um, we're starting to learn seem to be either turned back or turned on at the wrong times right. in neurodegenerative disease. And that might be the early signs, like you said, um, at, at around age 30. Although most people think at this moment, the changes that are happening in Alzheimer's disease are really presented like 40s, 50s, like middle wow. age. And that's when the brain starts to um, become at risk. It, it, I mean, th this, this, this kind of idea is changing all the time, right? Uh, mm. As we get better tools to look into people's brains, um, we're going we're gonna to get a lot better resolution. So mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that that is a hardline fact for any, <clears throat> excuse me, at any stretch of the imagination. Mm. What I will say is, is your, your brain is actually capable of generating new neurons. We, 
we used to think that you were born with all the neurons. Yeah, I remember this, have, man. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, some really cool studies, they actually used uh, radioactive isotopes from um, so a side benefit from all the nuclear tests that the United States did. Oh, fantastic. Uh, back in, yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> back in the day. And they created these uh, carbon isotopes that you could then um, absorb if you lived nearby to these places. You know, you'd absorb them from crops that were mm -hmm. exposed to the radioactive isotopes, which were mostly harmless, I should say. But mm -hmm. you can measure these radioactive isotopes, and they have a very set decay time. So it allowed people to essentially get a birthday for all of the neurons in the brain. And they found right. that some of them were way younger than the people, the patients' brains wow. that they came from, right? Which suggests that yes, the brain is capable of developing new neurons. And that's actually a, a point of study in one of the labs I'm in. I'm in two labs, which is not unheard of, um, but it's certainly not that common for a PhD student to be split. Mm -hmm. I can talk a bit of more about that later, but one of those labs studies adult neurogenesis, mm -hmm. which is kind of the opposite of neurodegeneration in Genesis some respects. instead of degeneration, right? Yeah. Exactly. So it's the birth of new neurons. And your brain is capable and is probably doing, I mean, certainly doing this now. <laughs> um, some estimates are saying we're getting so. about 700 new neurons per day. Wow. Okay. Um, and unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, it's happening in very discrete regions by the time we're adults, um, okay. a place called the hippocampus, which is a center of learning and memory. There are some ties with emotion. Um, it's a beautiful structure and I, uh, you know, I'd love to uh, post pictures of it later perhaps, but it's essentially uh, a place where we, we can separate patterns, we can mm -hmm. learn context for things. Um, and it, unfortunately that area is this kind of nest for newborn neurons, um, that area seems to get hit pretty darn hard in Alzheimer's disease. Wow. Um, it's not the first area to get hit, but it, it does seem to be the epicenter of where the two proteins that people normally talk about in Alzheimer's mm -hmm. disease are mixing together and just wreaking havoc. Mm -hmm. um, so to step back on the neurodegeneration, people always say uh, it's amyloid beta and tau. You might have heard of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, maybe not, but there are these two buzzwords in Alzheimer's disease and um, there are two proteins that clump up basically and they can clog things up. Um, they, they, they cause a massive amount of damage when they're basically clumped up in the brain. Mm -hmm. uh, breaking that down, amyloid beta is uh, a, basically a, a snip of a much lar longer, larger protein that we need absolutely, excuse me, for normal development to survive um, and just for, for cells in the brain to work normally. Mm -hmm. And then tau has the normal function too, it stabilizes the support structure of the brain, the microtubules, um, which are basically the skeleton of a neuron, for example. Mm -hmm. So these two proteins, they have normal functions in the brain. They clump up and they start to cause inflammation. They start to cause cell death and damage, and that's where we actually get the neurodegeneration. Right. Um, but they're coming from kind of different spots in the brain, or at least they're always, they're in mostly every cell, but they're, aggregation that clumping up starts to seep in from different areas in the brain at least as mm. far as we know now yeah. and they seem to meet in that hippocampus which again unfortunately is this kind of beautiful extremely spot. important <laughs> like, yeah yeah and yeah. and um and that's that's where really my area of research is focusing on how can we maybe protect the hippocampus against these uh -huh. um these damaging proteins or how can we at least figure out 
how or why they're getting there um, and, and work towards some sort of cure that way. Mm. It's not the only region that's important. I don't want to say that. Um, you know, we, I just did a podcast with um, an Alzheimer's researcher and he's really excited about the brainstem, which is like uh, basically the core uh, of your brain that connects your body with your with your mind and mm-hmm. uh, that's where tau really starts to do a lot of damage and a ton of people are looking at that and i think those work is super exciting so mm. yeah um, people are going at this from all sorts of angles but yeah um i i do want to step back first you have any questions about the stuff i've said i guess um i guess from like a normal sort of layman point of view is um the two things whenever we talk about sort of disorders diseases the two mm-hmm. things people always want to ask and always want to hear, number one, sort of how is it diagnosed? How do you know if you have it, for example? You know, in this, I know a lot in terms of mood disorders and things like that, um, how complex it is really to, to put the finger on you do have this or do not have this. You know, if we talk about cancer, it, it's obvious you can do a biopsy and see if it's growing at rates that it shouldn't be growing at, but for a mental illness, it's a little bit different. I'd imagine Alzheimer's is complicated like that, at least similarly as well. So that's one thing, which is how, how it's diagnosed. The other thing is lifestyle factors that we know about. What are the lifestyle factors that actually make an effect? Because people, when they hear about diseases, they want to know two things. Do I have it and how can I not have it, basically, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's start with the first one, diagnosis. I do want to say I am not a clinician. Cool. Um, I I have never diagnosed anyone, and nor should you ever ask me to diagnose anyone with Alzheimer's disease. Okay, so um, don't send you any messages for diagnosis. Yeah, yeah please okay. don't ask me for that sort of medical advice. <laughs> <laughs> I can forward you to some people that are you know right. doing their jobs um, really well, and I can give you some resources. But beyond that. Um, you know, I, I can't say yes or no, but uh, as far as diagnosis goes, I do view diagnosis itself actually as a huge um, knowledge gap, mm. right? So I mentioned the sporadic and familial Alzheimer's disease. Um, familial, again, you have genetics and you can test for those genetics and um, you can probably, you probably would know if you have a family history mm-hmm. of Alzheimer's disease to get those genetic tests, especially if you have relatives that have uh, succumb to Alzheimer's disease in their 40s or 50s. Um, that's a huge red flag. And I would obviously, uh, I would definitely recommend genetic tests on that and, and talk to your doctor um, about that. There are also risk factors. People are doing 23andMe for the sporadic stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And then that's, again, not a guarantee. It's sometimes a four times risk, sometimes um, more if you start combining these things. As far as diagnosis goes, a lot of times it just has to be done through cognitive tests at the moment. That's been right. our main line for a while, right? You go to the doctor and um, you do this battery of memory um, tests as far as I understand. Again, I've never done this myself. Similar to uh, a lot of mood disorders and mental illnesses. Sure. You know, it's, it's strange because, uh, you know, in other illnesses is so sort of quantitative, you know, you can put something in a machine and you get a number basically where it, instead things like this is like it's qualitative. It's really dependent on the person and you're, you're making sort of um, extrapolations or assumptions from things that occur in these sort of tests, right? Judgment calls. That's Judgment right. Now, calls. I will say there are a ton, there's a ton of new technology that's making it more quantitative. As mm. you suggested, we need these tests. So there are blood tests that um, are probably going to be moved to the clinic rather soon. Um, wow. these, these are tests that can maybe detect amyloid beta or tau. Again, those those proteins that are clumping up, 
um, it seems like before they clump up, they're also circulating in massive amounts through the cerebral spinal fluid, which okay. is basically the little bath that incubates your um, your brain and supplies it um, with it, a lot of things it needs. And of course, your your blood goes uh, through your brain as well. The the brain is beautifully uh, permeated by this tree, this vast network of uh, blood vessels. So anything that's leaking out into um, outside of neurons or, or other cells in the brain is probably going to leak into the blood. So mm -hmm. saliva tests, blood tests are now being um, really looked at and, and are probably moving to the clinic very soon if they're not right. there already. I, I don't know of the current status of those. There's also PET scans, uh, positron emission tomography. I'm not, maybe I'm butchering that. But um, these PET scans are capable now of tracing these proteins in the brain. And so you can um, put a tracer into someone just inject it into their bloodstream. And again, since the blood gets into the brain, it'll, it'll permeate the brain and you'll be able to see if there are uh, a massive amounts of protein in mm. um, one place or another. And that would mm -hmm. suggest again, that you are either uh, getting Alzheimer's you have it or, or you're highly at risk. So uh, these things are, especially the PET scans are rather expensive um, and, and, you know, time consuming and costly. Uh, we are getting more efficient at it. And then these, you know, saliva and blood tests again, if, if those prove out to be really reliable, I think they are going to change the game. Mm. But there's this whole idea in the Alzheimer's field that uh, we should really be treating way earlier if we actually want a cure, right? Yeah. Um, well, that's one of the we, things with, with, again, mood disorders and stuff like that is it's where do you pinpoint the beginning of one of these extremely complex diseases, you know? And it, and it would make sense that a state in time saves nine if you've heard that expression yeah right? yeah like definitely. if we can stem the bleeding way earlier we can really do a whole lot of good versus you know if you catch someone um 70 or 80 and they're already having huge memory problems mm -hmm. um the the frontline treatments that we have right now just again they're going to buy them a few years but um it may not be the best and and that does bring us i think to lifestyle because people you know they often ask me like how can i protect myself like mm -hmm. what can i do and um and right now the data isn't that strong, but for just taking care of yourself and your body. Common answer for every disease, right? <laughs> I know. And it's so sad yeah. because people want this magic pill and, and something that they can take. But in, in yeah, like you said, virtually every disease, um, all these experiments we're doing, you know, we see small effects, marginal effects for some mm. drugs. And, 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 you know, we do push those drugs to the clinic because <clears throat> they do buy you a few years. But if you want to make the biggest difference, taking care of your body and brain uh, seems to be the most important thing. And mm. like I said, episode 46, uh, I mentioned the brainstem. Um, that was Dr. Steinbuch basically talking about how your, your daily experience, you know, getting out and kind of using your brain, use it or lose it mm. mentality. Yeah. Um, it, the data does really support that, right? So wow. he was talking about exercise. He was talking about group exercise specifically. So uh, you mentioned yoga, stuff like that. Um, Pilates, like uh, the social interaction component mm -hmm. seems to be super important, not only mm -hmm. getting your blood moving and circulating, but that social interaction seems to do wonderful things to the brain. And exercise in and of itself probably has this huge or we know it has this huge immune component, right? Mm. Um, when we're talking about protein clumps in Alzheimer's disease, uh, it shouldn't be ignored that the systems we have in place to deal with those things are actually pretty darn good. It's mm. just that they start to get really tired and worn out when we get to later ages. 
So it's not like the brain has no way of compensating or dealing with these things. It does. Otherwise, you know, we might succumb to the disease far earlier. Um, but the immune system is, is really good and the brain has its own immune system at clearing these, these particles, these proteins away before they can cause major damage. Um, and ways to boost the immune system are not surprisingly things that are really good for Alzheimer's disease risk, like eating healthy, strong foods with high nutrient values instead of empty calories or uh, getting again, the exercise and mm. um, getting, you know, a little bit of sunlight for vitamin D or, or supplementing if you can't. Um, it, it all really, <laughs> I mean, it, it makes a, a lot of sense, right? But people have a hard time going out and, and I mean, it's a discipline thing in some cases, mm. um, but there's certainly some people who are, you know, uh, in, physically impaired who, who actually can't go out and exercise. Definitely. And I think that's a huge, uh, uh, a huge problem that we're going to need to try and address. And there are people who just don't have the money or the time to mm. take care of themselves. There's a lot of issues with it. Yeah. Yeah. Like the socioeconomic fa factor is a, is a huge part that's hard to contend with. And, um, you know, that, it's a funny thing, the magic pill thing. It's something I think about quite a lot, to be honest. Um, and yeah, some stuff that I've sort of read about or listened to other podcasts about, it's a weird, I'm not, I'm not sure why humans necessarily want or do that. There's, there's some obvious reasons for it, but it's, um, we just, we're just not very good at judging risk or something like that because we, we can have great things thrown in our face, but if it's not necessarily easy enough, we're not going to do it. And we want, we, we would prefer a solution that's, you know, probably not even going to work like most supplements and, and stuff along those lines and again perfect example this book that i'm reading the why we sleep book great sort of communication book and he talks about just the benefits of sleep and sleeping longer because first of all we're extremely underslept and as a world kind of thing yeah and uh he was talking about all these these common worries that people have you know about their health about their immune system about fighting off colds and all this money people spend on doing this, that, and the other for their health. And then he went through some statistics of how much benefit just getting decent sleep for a week is. You know, one thing was like just the, the ability to fight off a cold of ensuring throughout the week you getting a decent sleep just, just completely slashes your chance of getting a cold, as an example. I think one thing he said, I can't remember the exact number, so I don't really want to kind of say it but he was saying if you get sort of under seven hours sleep like your your immune system is working at like it you slash off a quarter of its efficiency basically and that's with all that's your immune system so that that's that's also you know fighting off cancer and, and a host of other diseases and i can imagine us learning more about sort of these um brain issues i guess because there's obviously more issues that we have in our brain than alzheimer's and and we we having this a same sort of thing that we want to take all these supplements or these these medications to try and fix it and the reality is it doesn't actually do that much yeah I, and um we're talking about lifestyle i totally gapped on the sleep thing <laughs> yeah, um, yeah of course. sleep is super important for uh, warding off alzheimer's risk and um you know people have actually shown at least in mice that when the mouse is asleep, they've done this live imaging and you can see amyloid beta, one of those um, kind of sticky, clumpy proteins causes damage being sucked away along the wow. brain's sewage system, right? So while we're sleeping, we are really cleaning the brain up and it makes sense, right? If you, you go to a, a populated beach and people are there all day, but then when people leave, 
the beach cleaners come through, you know, mm-hmm. on, a, on a city street, the same thing. When people are asleep, the street cleaners are coming through and they're just sweeping everything away. But if mm-hmm. people, if, you know, if you're living in, um, like Times Square, I don't, I don't actually never been there in the middle of the night, but I could imagine like if that was populated through the entire night, you'd never have a chance to clean that up. It would get super dirty, super fast. So, um, sleep is not to be underestimated at all. And unfortunately, uh, Alzheimer's patients do have impaired sleep in many cases. So it's this cycle where if you're, you know, maybe that, um, critical time window, thirties, forties, fifties, if you're not getting enough sleep because you're working your ass off in your job or stressed or whatever it is, mm. and you're not prioritizing um, that, that seven, eight, nine hours of sleep if people need different values. But um, that can trigger some of these disorders and, and protein clumps and those can actually feed forward and then you can't even sleep even when you try to. I was going to say, it's that feedback loop, right? Like once you maybe don't have that sleep then you're less able to get the sleep again when we're talking about mental illnesses i know people with bipolar have a really really hard time sleeping or getting consistent sleep they might have periods in the night that you know they sleep far too light and they'll wake up a few times and sadly one of the things that helps stabilize their mood is a good night's sleep and it's like this really you know ugly kind of cycle it's bizarre and actually um one thing that he he says in this book again um, he talks about the, you know, just as a factor of evolution, how much of a disadvantage sleep puts us at, right? right. We're literally laying on the floor as humans. We're not like <laughs> apes or anything. We're laying on the floor at night when lots of predators are awake. And uh, during REM sleep, you know, we're paralyzed. Our b- bodies are paralyzed. So for eight hours. So it must have some pretty considerable benefits for it to have not been evolutionarily phased out which is i think it's like such a good sort of um i guess comparison like it, it it's it has to be so true oh absolutely <laughs> and maybe that's one of the things that convince can convince people who are like oh i don't need that much sleep to <laughs> yeah. you know it's not doing my body that much good and to be fair i think he does say that some people genetically don't actually seem to need as much sleep, mm. but they are a very small percentage of the population. Tiny. So don't assume that that is you. Yeah, <laughs> that is you. That is me. Um, yeah, that's, it's a weird thing we have too. I, again, like talking about before, the things that aren't kind of beneficial for us sometimes kind of get uh, bastardized or, yep. or looked upon in an incorrect sort of light and sleep is definitely one of those like if you don't if you yeah you know margaret thatcher winston churchill i only got four hours of sleep a night and they were still rescuing a country and blah 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 it's like a bragging point if you're not sleeping much because if you're not sleeping you kind of you're getting after it you know you you're getting up earlier than the other guy and it's like that's kind of an you know once upon a time that kind of made sense but now once with the knowledge that we have that's kind of an ugly thing to to say yeah, and unfortunately, the Western world, at least, is still playing this pain Olympics game, right? Mm. Uh, I suffered more than you. Mm. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm winning, right? Um, I would not agree with that. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's lab culture as well. I see that. Um, you know, I see that with my peers. It's like, oh, yeah. It, again, we were talking about the immense hours that some people put in. It's like, oh, man, I was doing this experiment until midnight uh, the other night because um, I was running, like, three experiments all day. <laughs> it's just... Plan a little better and prioritize yeah. um, your sleep, right? Because you're you're gonna make more errors, and you're gonna have Definitely. to repeat that experiment next week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're gonna have to do it again. That's right. Yeah, I remember um, 
see, I, I actually, I didn't finish school, right? I didn't finish high school. Um, so I had to do sort of like a bridging, a bridging course, like a college course that we call for a year. And I remember one of the lecturers, sorry, to get into university, that is. And um, okay. one of the lecturers said to me, because um, a few of them had done like year 12 or like, like high high school maths and I was really struggling. I remember he said to me like, the organized guy will be the smart guy like all the time. And I was like, that's just stuck with me so much because it's true. Like you, you get the efficiency in, you don't mess around, you you do things at the right time when you should do them. And, and you know, it is not to, not to say that there is times that you've really got to, you know, put the foot down and you've really got to work hard and maybe work late. But there is the possibility of making time for the exercise, or making time for the sleep or making time for the, the personal enjoyment with your friends and family. And I hate to bang on about it, but, it, you know, it's something that I do think about quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, I know we're, we're really drawing this home, but on the subject of lifestyle, <laughs> it, the discipline is going to go a long way. It's something people don't want to hear. Um, no. People like, will ask me, because I'm in kind of in terms of my peers, like I go to the gym probably more than most other people. Mm. Um, I'm the guy who will sneak away and if a good gap in experiment yeah. presents itself um, and I'm, I'm going to come back uh, showered and stuff. Mm-hmm. They ask me like how I do it. And I'm like, I just do it. <laughs> like, I don't do it. really... Uh. Um, I don't really have a secret other than just go and, and do it, but you have to, you have to build habits for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, a bit of jujitsu I saw as well on your, uh, yeah. Um, I will say I've been off the mat. I got, um, <laughs> I don't know if you want to talk about this too much. I got ringworm from it. Oh yeah. Okay. So I'm a, you got it in during the tournament. Yeah. Um, way. that sucks. Yeah. It was rough. So I came home. Oh, several people actually from UNC, uh, Oof. school I'm at came home with it. So it was a, it was a mixed like mixing bowl of other schools. So we don't know which school brought it to us, but, um, yeah, it was kind of rough because I got wow. it right on my wrist where my gloves go. Mm. Uh, and that was just a, an incubator for this stuff. Uh, the gloves hot. Couldn't dry it out. Right. Moist. Yeah, exactly. Um, and from there it then spread to my face. I think I slept like this, oh. like an idiot completely wow. underestimated it so i was out of the gym for a couple of months and um, now i'm like really scared uh to to get back on the mat because i can't like suffer like that again you know we're talking yeah. about all these lifestyle things i my sleep was messed up my definitely um you know because i wasn't one because i wasn't able to get exercise too because it was just so darn itchy for a while uh, and it kind of throws you off course a little bit too like even confidence wise and stuff oh yeah yeah, everything's so. messed up. So, anyways, yeah, I might not be a jujitsu, <laughs> might not be doing jujitsu uh, in the future. We'll see. I'm gonna give it uh, one more shot, and then if I get ringworm again, I'm yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you're a scientist. There's things you can do to try and avoid the ringworm. That's for sure. For sure. I've, yeah, I I'm, completely underestimated yeah. it when I got it. I was like, oh, this is easy to treat, but it was just the where it was, and it was. Summer was coming into Chapel Hill, and Even this place worse. is kind of a jungle right now. So yeah, yeah. It's, like ringworm and staff in wrestling and jujitsu are just like horrendous things, horrendous things. Um, I, cause I do jujitsu. I've been doing it for maybe five years or so now. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. Probably way better than me. <laughs> maybe, maybe not though. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I've had ringworm. I've had it twice. Both times, um, I've jumped on it pretty fast. Thankfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time, <clears throat> the only reason I jumped on it fast is someone basically told me to, and I was uh, lucky enough that I listened. Then the next time I didn't play around. But actually, recently for me, I had sort of a weird infection on my scalp, and um, that I think was from jujitsu. Um, there's no other sort of reason. All my lymph nodes up my neck w- went swollen, and 
and down my side too. Yeah, really bad. Um, an infection I've just never experienced before. And um, yeah, it's uh, it, getting it from a tournament sucks, man. That means like wherever you competed must have been pretty a pretty filthy place, maybe. They're pretty good about cleaning the mats there, um, from what I've heard. From another school, then. Yeah, I think I think it was just someone brought in some funky stuff, and we yeah. were all rolling with that person or people. Um, <laughs> just got inoculated. So here's some scary stuff um, uh, developing in the field of Alzheimer's disease, and this is definitely disputable. I, I don't right. want to say this is hardcore fact. My favorite uh, there thing. Is, yeah. Um, so some people, especially you know, some of the people who've been around in the field for a while, are definitely resisting this. Um, I think the evidence is getting pretty clear at this point, mm -hmm. but again, this could be completely wrong. So mm -hmm. while it is terrifying and the implications um, could actually really lead us towards better treatments and cures for Alzheimer's disease, um, it, this has not been conclusively proven or accepted. That was like such a classic, like a scientist precursor to it. So, like, you know, like the precursor is longer than the thing you're about to say. Like, oh, well, no, I wouldn't say that. It's a okay, complicated okay. system or uh, like interaction we're looking right. at. Um, amyloid beta. We were talking about amyloid beta a lot. Um, now, amyloid beta is one of the first things to show up in Alzheimer's disease. It goes amyloid beta, then tau. And right when you're getting a bunch of tau, you start to get huge cognitive deficits and neurodegeneration, the loss of neurons. So this idea that amyloid beta is the trigger for neuroinflammation, like this activation of the immune system in the brain that then causes tau to kind of come out of the woodwork and start aggregating. And then that chokes out neurons and kills them. That's mm -hmm. been conventional hypothesis for you know a couple decades, I think. Um, and people are trying to get rid of amyloid beta in order to basically just let's just stop that whole cascade, right? That would make sense. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with that is that amyloid beta seems to be an ancient am antibody system. I should be saying beta amyloid. Hmm. Technically, that is <laughs> people say amyloid beta beta amyloid. Um, I've been told by Charles Glave in one of our podcasts. Um, I think that was uh, episode forty-one that uh, it's it should be beta amyloid. He's a huge expert on the aggregation. Anyways. Just like the way it's named from the structure, maybe, right? <laughs> exactly. It's, yeah. it's a structural thing. It's mm -hmm. when it assumes um, like that structure, and that's when it becomes problematic in the brain. Mm -hmm. Anyways, it seems like these amyloid beta clumps, beta amyloid clumps, <clears throat> excuse me, are clumping around infectious particles. Mm -hmm. So here's the rub. We can't block amyloid beta as a target, it would seem. Mm -hmm. And that's actually been reflected very recently. Um, there are these anti-amyloid beta, beta amyloid <laughs> antibodies, and they're targeting the protein, trying to clear it out. Those have actually started to fail in clinical trials. Mm. We, were, we thought they were super promising for a while. And there might yet be hope for some of these therapies that come at it from slightly different angles. Um, but one of the things we noticed right away in these clinical trials was some of these patients were getting infection way more often. Wow. So they, they were at increased risk for infection. Um, and this makes sense if you consider the putative role of that protein. If it really is an ancient antibody system that kind of jumps onto viruses, bacteria, fungi, anything, any particles that show up um, in, in the brain or other tissues, it's not, this protein is not limited to the brain. Mm. Um, then it would make sense that if you get rid of that, the body has, the brain and body have less defense of, system um, kind of thing. Exactly, a defense <laughs> system against it. So that's point of evidence number one to me, is that when we get rid of it, we get increased infection. Mm -hmm. The scarier part um, <laughs> I've had to tell is that some people are detecting these particles, infectious particles, 
uh, fungi again. Um, so like ringworm is super scary at that mm-hmm. point because it's a fungal infection. Bacteria, yeah. viruses in brains of patients, human patients in mouse brains, um, within neurons. Um, so again, there's this huge fear of contamination because how this actually works is someone dies, they donate their brain to science, uh, goes to the hospital and then the brain is sliced and it's preserved uh, or preserved then sliced. And then we look at it under a microscope and we try to find these, um, you know, infectious particles. So during that stage, there's a lot of, of times in which contamination could happen mm-hmm. theoretically. Um, and, and people are trying to be super careful about that and like work in clean rooms and, and do everything they can to uh, avoid this. Um, but I've seen some of the evidence and it's, um, it's not looking good for the people who want to say that this is just contamination. Like I would love if this was not the case, right? I would love if that I got sick, I don't have to worry about my brain. If I got a systemic wow. infection, I don't have to worry about my brain. But it does seem like that is what's happening. Again, some people are going to dispute me on this, but there <laughs> is evidence. It's coming out of the woodwork now, and you're going to see headlines more and more um, that that these things seem to be happening. So, but I mean, again, from an anecdotal point of view, like why not? In the way that we we get infections and, and issues with fungus inside the rest of our body so yeah, why, why is the brain separate? protected yeah. yeah exactly well the brain does have some really good protective layers right of course it's different but it's not it's still a physical thing it's not like it's got some imaginary force field around it it's still <laughs> yeah. you know it's still got the you know nature finds a way to get into all things and and you know across other species there's things that get in and infect brains uh, definitely viruses is a common thing in, in brains, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, so so I can't so, imagine why funguses or bacteria wouldn't have the same opportunity. Yeah, herpes virus, for example, um, yeah. is actually a neurovirus. And wow. we know that herpes virus has uh, carries an increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. Wow. Which sucks because something like 80% of the aged adult population will have one yeah. simplex of herpes by the time like they're that old. So um, to me, it's it's, yeah, like you said, it, it is kind of intuitive that this would actually be happening. Mm-hmm. And it's also intuitive that that would track with aging, right? Mm. The longer you live, the more infectious particles, the, the more infections you're going to have, mm-hmm. the more times you're going to get sick, mm. the more times there, those things are going to get into the brain. And even if you clean up, uh, you know, this stuff, every time you do the cleanup, it can cause some damage, right? Because you're mm. like scooping out the infected parts. Yeah. Um, and and there's also other things like radiation and things people are looking into and you're just going to incur more damage. So it yeah. makes sense as to why this kind of disease is so hard to pinpoint one single cause. Yeah. And yet it seems to happen reliably more and more as you age just because you're you're exposing your, your brain to more damage. So, mm. um, yeah, that's the scary part, though, is that um, it does seem like infection could be a huge trigger for this sort of inflammation wow. that then again kicks up um, tau and tau certainly seems to be something that can cause a huge amount of damage to neurons. So mm-hmm. I mentioned the anti-amyloid uh, beta antibodies that are trying to clear those way. Those aren't looking so good. There's also the anti-tau antibodies and uh, I have higher hopes for those. Okay. So okay. while we can't block infection, like we can't stop people from living their lives, right? They're not going to, and no one's going to be bubble boy. No. Um, we might be able to stop the harmful effects of infection to a point. Mm-hmm. So, um, one thing that I did want to say to you that I was sort of planning on saying before before we started the podcast, um, the small bit of 
mental planning that I did do. <laughs> um, the cool thing about science in a lot of fields is it sort of makes, um, what's the right way to word this? It sort of makes the opposite side of that recede. And an example of that is uh, even just with religion, sort of religion kind of recedes a little bit that the more science grows. You know, we used to think that the earth was 6,000 years old and we used to think that the earth was the center of the universe. And then the more we learn about astrophysics, you know, that sort of has to recede a little bit. And then there's different debates about, you know, the, the place of religion in society or or the truth of any of it. But we know now that that is not the case because it is it had to have recede, receded. And even in the field of medicine, like once upon a time, we basically had witch doctors and then we had, you know, leeching to, to bleed yeah. out bad blood. It was like kind of more of a spiritual thing. And then even um, around the Victorian era, when we were just starting to sort of crack people open, then we had like the magic of infection that we didn't understand. People were just dying for no reason. And then we understood what a bacteria was and it kind of recedes and recedes and recedes. And, you know, I know a lot of people talk about the brain and sort of 21st century. This is kind of the time in which it's the brain's turn. You know, mm. we've always we've always thought of it as this sort of um, I was going to say special thing. It is a special thing. It's amazing, but this sort of uh, completely like it's it's a separate entity to the rest of the physical. It's not a physical world thing. It's like a sort of consciousness thing. It's completely separate. It's insanely complex, which it is. What do you expect, sort of, if you could look a hundred years in the future or something like that? How do you think our relationship with the brain? How do you think our relationship with the brain will change? What What do you think will be different? Do you think it's going to be a case of like we understand it to the point we know this protein, this protein? It's going to be like we understand it in a mechanical sense, like we almost understand the human body to be now. You know, it's just like you fix this part and you sort that part out and everything's okay. Or do you think it's always going to be like this sort of separate, separate thing? Um, it's a big I mean, question, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so first thing, uh, let's just look at the time scale. Hundred years, if we follow Moore's law, we're going to have an insane amount of computational power. Um, and then it does look like some of these uh, funding structures are going to push more and more into the brain. You know, uh, the Obama administration in the United States had the Brain Initiative, and there's more funding coming into Alzheimer's disease research than ever before because some of these old rich folks are realizing they're kind of at risk and, yeah and, um, yeah they're, they're getting worried rich people get it too yeah exactly um so you know if current trends continue there'd be much more lots more funding which means more people working on it um then i think we are going to really start breaking down at a mechanical level some of the some of the things the inner workings of the brain absolutely and then there's also you know the vasculature in the brain mm. to be huge in the area of disease research and then also um, that waste clearance system the sewage system is actually mm -hmm. called the glymphatic system um, and that's where we think that amyloid beta is being drawn out during sleep it's just being cleared out and like we basically just discovered that yesterday right wow. so um so knowing that that we knew that other tissues had like a very similar mechanism, but no one knew the brain had this because um, it seems to work in a slightly different way. Okay. And um, there's a lot more research coming into other cell types in the brain versus uh, everyone, you know, thinks of neurons, which rightly so. I mean, you wouldn't have cognition and you wouldn't be able to move your muscles without motor neurons. Um, neurons are, you know, kind of the, the central part of the brain that makes it somewhat unique, but there's all these support cells in the brain. Mm. There are actually 10 times the number of these support cells by some estimates than there are neurons. Wow. Uh, so these are called like glial cells basically. And these glial cells can be microglia, which are the immune cells. They can be astrocytes, 
um, which do all sorts of different things. They can kind of act as uh, buffers. So they, um, that's one way to, they kind of even out some of the synaptic transmission that goes in mm-hmm. They're They're, they're there at every single connection between neurons mm-hmm. kind of calling, not calling the shots, but um, kind of a mediator, I should say. Making things and well. They also have some thing. immune. Yeah. They also have some immune functions. They're kind of a Swiss army knife of mm-hmm. the cell. And I think they're super fascinating, not only in the context of neurodegenerative disease, but also in neuroscience in general. And we've, you know, in, in many past decades, just been focusing on those neurons again, those are just two types of glial cells. <laughs> um, but we're, we're discovering kind of more and more subpopulations all the time. We're discovering more subpopulations of neurons and, um, and mapping out the brain like we've never done before. So mm-hmm. I think in 100 years, yeah, we would have a pretty good understanding of um, mechanical inner workings of the human brain. You know, we have this full connectome. A Nature paper was just released recently. I actually posted it on Instagram okay. um, if you want to check it out. And it's just in a worm like a, a tiny, a tiny worm model organism, mm-hmm. but we do have the full connectome it's called of all the neurons in that worm and how they're talking to each other. Wow. So this is like a, a full significant, basically, yeah. Brain and body map. Now that's proof of concept, mm. right? So we, we've, we've gotten step one, <laughs> um, in a hundred years, I, I would imagine we would have something much closer uh, to the human brain, I don't know if we will have, you know, a full top to bottom understanding of what's going on in our, our brain because, again, way more complex. And then also there's huge ethical um, yeah. uh, concerns, right? Because the way we're able to do this in worms is we kind of have to take them apart in a lot of cases. Um, we can't and shouldn't be doing that to a live human. So um, until we can maybe simulate a lot of these things um, using computational power and, and make sure those simulations are accurate, mm-hmm. um, we're not going to be able to make the same strides uh, in, in the human brain. So mm-hmm. there are some fundamental barriers and obstacles um, to that. And I, I, you know, rightly so, I don't think we should be taking apart <laughs> the brain of a live human. I, yeah. I don't think anyone deserves <clears throat> to, um, to have that happen to them. So mm-hmm. then there's also like Neuralink, right? Um, I don't yeah. Know if you're following Elon Musk's and Musk and his, yeah. um, yeah. So that's going to change the game too. Yeah. Right. Um, Huge. Not only for people who are paralyzed, but then, you know, the everyday person might be implanting, um, some sort of, uh, transmitter in, in their brain for data mm-hmm. upload and download. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to change the way we think about the brain uh, as well. There's, of course, uh, these neural nets that people are trying to make artificial brains using computers. And, um, you know, those are a very, those are a far distance away, I think, as well, because the brain is, even a neuron is complex on so many different levels. And uh, it is kind of its own, its own little microchip computer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, capable of receiving, integrating, um, and calculating these messages and then sending them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have you know, <laughs> so many, so many neurons. And then on top of that, again, the other cell types. So to be able to simulate that is a, is a tall order. I'm not a computational guy, but mm. um, it, it does really spin my head around. So yeah, a long way of saying in a hundred years, yes, we've got, <clears throat> we'll, we'll have gotten close. I don't think we're, we're going to have like this amazing full understanding of the brain, but I do think in a hundred years we'll, have solved a lot of the problems um, that people are, are really struggling with in terms mm-hmm. of mental disorders, in terms of um, neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative disorders. I think we're going to have made a ton of progress there. Mm-hmm. And um, 
you know, there are going to be these, these brain stimulation technologies. We're probably going to know how to manipulate a lot of the human circuits in the brain, which is scary too. So we, it is time to have these ethical discussions on what we should, could, and, uh, what some people perhaps are already doing. Um, you know, yeah, I, th- I think that's a big deal. I, I had a podcast um, once with, he's a, he's sort of like a communication scientist in Australia and uh, he's an astrophysicist and his name's Alan Duffy. And he, uh, he said one thing in that podcast that like, he's just glued in my brain now. And it's kind of, um, the way that I kind of always think about it. He said, he's sort of concerned about us sleepwalking into certain sort of technological situations. Right. And, um, and I guess what he means by that is not necessarily trying to do anything necessarily out of malice or out of power or anything like that, but I, there's a lot of these situations where we don't fully understand the, the breadth, you know, the width of the the ramifications that certain learnings or certain new technologies or certain developments might have. And um, I think the brain is arguably like the biggest ones of that i think i think there's a few other things that sort of rival it like if we found aliens somewhere that would probably be a big deal for all people in society um but the brain is like being able to understand the brain a little bit more uh even in terms of just being able to diagnose much more readily treat and cure again mental illnesses or mood disorders i think that's going to sort of really change uh, a lot of how it is to be a human in society. Like imagine, imagine if we could pinpoint sort of where addiction comes from mm-hmm. and fix that problem. Like how the, you know, issues in society that suddenly wouldn't be there anymore. You know, your friend that you had that's maybe drinking a little bit too much who 20 years ago might've died from alcohol poisoning is you can just take him to a clinic overnight and he can get something done to his brain and, and be fixed. And I think, you know, this is one of the things with the brain. Like I'm sort of concerned about sleepwalking, like I said, into, into situations that we don't fully know the width of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, the, some of the examples you're given and the ones I was talking about, a lot of those are going to be great, right? Mm. But we are going to get the bad with the good. Mm. Um, you're certainly right. And um, there are going to be people who want to take advantage of this technology for evil, right? I mean, mm. um, I don't think there are as many mad scientists out there <laughs> as the media might have you believe. Because uh, <laughs> it seems like in every movie, there's some mostly Asian guy uh, yeah. doing something terrible to dinosaur genetics. <laughs> I think of some recent examples um, and then creating monsters. But uh, I mean, the, you know, the example in, um, in China, uh, stereotypically Asian, but <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, like they're curing potentially HIV, which is phenomenal. Right. Mm. Um, but with those, or sorry, like making, um, making children HIV resistant. Right with those genetic changes that they, they made to those uh, embryos and then now um, developing humans, uh, some cognitive changes occurred as well. Mm-hmm. And we don't understand the ramifications of that. Um, you know, this is going to be amplified by designer babies, which mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you might know are on the horizon, right? Mm-hmm. And as we figure out these genes that uh, predispose you to being more intelligent by any measure or, um, having better social skills or uh, or editing out the genes uh, that seem to drive autism, for example. Uh, we're going to get this stratification, this layering of, of the human population that we are probably not prepared to deal with considering um, when we're all fairly I- I- genetically identical at the moment, we have these huge class struggles, these mm-hmm. interclass struggles. And 
uh, that to me is one of the biggest concerns in, in terms of brain research where, um, you know, the top echelon are going to have access to these tools far before the, yeah. the bottom and the, you know, the bottom may not, may never get access and probably will never get access to some of these tools. And, um, you know, those lower classes are going to need to be protected, uh, in some way if we're just going to start boosting the top layer, um, right. Otherwise we're going to get straight up speciation. <laughs> like, like we're going to have not only, you know, people are worried about race struggles. What about when humans are so genetically edited that there are basically different species? I mean, wow. like, this, is, this is super sci-fi at the moment. Um, but is it, like, you know, that's the thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but it, but it does seem like an inevitability, mm. right? It, it's, uh, it's looking forward in the future and saying, all right, if we follow the natural progression of what we're doing, and in a lot of cases, these technologies make sense to apply right now. And uh, we're kind of a short-sighted species, so we're mm. going to probably do it anyways. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, it's important to have these conversations now before yeah. shit hits yeah. the fan. And, then, you know, that's, that's an important point, too, in the way that... Um, you know, the, the rich ones will get this before the, the poor. And if, if it is some sort of technology that um, makes us more intelligent, makes us more attractive, makes us far less susceptible to X, Y, and Z disease, um, then those rich ones who originally got this technology first on, they're going to be much more able to continue using that technology and to get the next technology and things like that. And, and uh, the, the the speed of diversity between these two sort of groups is going to be quicker as technology sort of speeds up too. Um, it's all very black mirror kind of thing, but uh, yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's something <laughs> I, I definitely think about. And uh, you know, it, and it must be weird for you because you know when you when you're in the lab and you, you know you're thinking of these sort of complex ideas about the brain, and you, I'm sure you're seeing sort of scans and and uh, looking at research about, you know, really kind of highfalutin sort of ideas about the brain, it must, you know, these things must creep into your head a lot. Oh, certainly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and that's why I love to hammer home, like the things that everyone can do, virtually mm -hmm. everyone can do, eat right, uh, exercise. Now, like we said, some people who are working 20 hours a day, whatever it is, um, aren't going to have access to that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. And that is really sad. Um, but there are some things that almost every person can do to help mm -hmm. themselves out right now. And mm -hmm. the data shows that that is going to work. Mm -hmm. um, so once, I mean, we've, we've beaten that dead horse, but yeah, I mean, I do think about, um, you know, the, the implications of my discoveries and, and hoping that they can benefit the larger population rather than the top 1% or whatever mm -hmm. it is that's, that's going to get these expensive technologies. Now, as I look further down my career, um, you know, not every PhD goes into academia these days. In fact, uh -huh. it's quite the opposite. There's just not that much space at universities. We're training way more um, PhDs than there are open um, professor track, uh, tenure track positions at, at universities. And so a lot of these people are going into industry, which in some cases seems really appealing because they tend to uh, have better work-life balance. And you know, we were just talking about all of that and how um, ac academics tend to burn out and they are probably overweight and uh, stressed because they're working all, all the time every day. Mm. Um, but then there's, you know, going into pharma and kind of selling your soul, that whole stigma. And that's not the case with every company, certainly. Uh. Um, but those are, you know, considerations that I, I do think about when I'm thinking about my career. So trying to spread the word about things that we know and things that we are kind of about to know, like this whole infection hypothesis. Um, I think it's going to break out soon. Uh, mm -hmm. 
if it hasn't already in some circles. Um, that's what I see the good at, that I can do, if that makes Definitely. sense, right? No, totally uh, so I'm fighting, I'm fighting the battles that I think I can fight and that I'm equipped to fight. And, um, you know, I can't, you know, I can't do everything, right? So yeah, <laughs> it's no. up to other people to, to do what they can and what they're qualified to do. Yeah, I, you know, I think that's a, it's a, it's a good point. And I really do feel for, for academics, like my, my current sort of trajectory, I don't, I've thought about PhDs, uh, I've almost even started the process of it and uh, I've kind of avoided it um, for the moment, just honestly, just because of the, the crap that's involved with it, which you're very aware of, I'm sure. And, <laughs> and you know, the financial thing that you mentioned too, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard life. You know, you're really working so hard and you're not getting really that much benefit from it. Um, you, you've got to do it because you want to be doing it in, you know, the same motivation that you've talked about. You actually, it's, it's not necessarily like you're working. You are actually, you feel like you are doing something for, Alzheimer's like when you're not working you feel like you're taking something away from Alzheimer's patients and mm. I think you know there's a lot of personal benefit that comes from that and but I never I've never really had any specific subject matter that I've felt that uh, desire for and for that reason I haven't really gone into it and PhDs that I've spoke to have said don't do it just because you don't know what else to do <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> I think that's I mean, a pretty good bit of advice maybe yeah because um, I mean even with the people who love what they're doing there's a, a decent attrition rate right people who Definitely. just uh like aren't aren't ready for that or, or something yeah yeah I, I think it it also shows how there needs to be at least some degree of uh overhaul in the structure of sort of education the structure of academics um the structure of what the general public view as success as well you know i always have a hard time when you know, people just automatically assume like money was success when no matter where that money comes from or no matter how they got that money or you know, maybe they're working in a bank or something like that. And that, this is not to this is not to throw crap at people working in a bank, but you know, it's 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 a strange situation in society when when the thing that is looked up most upon is is you know things that aren't necessarily beneficial to the to, to the greater good. And I guess you've got to sometimes ask yourself um, what is your net effect on the globe is it net positive or is it maybe going slightly towards the negative direction it's something that we've all sort of got to question and, and think about with our decisions i suppose well i think there's a much bigger question underlying that and this is something that i think the world hasn't decided like we're still struggling with this mm. um what is our goal mm. if we're talking about the collective right like human species what is our goal like economic progress and growth because that's been the model for decades and mm. centuries, really, mm -hmm. thousands of years. For obvious um, reasons, too. Yeah, because economic <laughs> growth has always uh, made life better for humans. Prosperity, uh, yeah. Given hum yeah, human value, quality of life has improved immensely um, over the, like, the past decade alone. Like mm. We're eradicating poverty all around the globe because, large part, to the massive economic growth that's been happening mm. in developed countries. Um, but I was listening to, uh, I don't know if you know, Eric Weinstein, Peter Thiel, they just started the portal, uh, podcast. Um, I didn't know that was the like podcast, the first episode. But... I'm like halfway through it now. So I haven't listened to the whole thing, but it struck me that, you know, Peter Thiel, um, I mentioned Elon Musk earlier, who's doing Neuralink, he's doing SpaceX, he's doing Tesla. Elon Musk seems to be dead set on improving human condition and like making sure we survive as a species. It's mm. one of the reasons he cites as like why we should go to Mars because an asteroid is inevitably going to hit earth. It's mm -hmm. done it, you know, hundreds, thousands of times, times before yeah. and it's, it's going to happen again and it could be a big one and we could be screwed here on this planet. So we should diversify our assets, <laughs> human assets basically. 
um, and spread out. So is the goal economic development and prosperity as like Peter Thiel seems to be optimizing for, and he has a lot of solutions for that in this podcast, uh, um, referencing the portal. Um, or is it his old business partner's uh, goal of, of, you know, ensuring survival and prosperity of humanity? Cause those things are starting to separate like the, that little, uh, like that thread is starting to untwine where mm. we're draining the world, the earth's resources, we're polluting the oceans all in the name of economic gain. And that's actually probably counterproductive towards uh, human survival and prosperity mm. in the long run. So I think yeah. you, you have these two separate goals, then um, yeah, it can, it can be hard to actually choose like what you want to do on a daily basis. Yeah. It's a, it's a question, I guess, changes over time and question that changes depending on what states the world is in or, or even the individual is in, you know, like it, it's something that I think about a lot when we consider climate change. Like <clears throat> I'm in Korea at the moment and uh, Korea has a lot of problems um, climate wise. They have horrible air pollution here. Um, the plastic usage here, I've just never experienced. My, it's just disgusting. It makes me feel really? sick. Yeah, it's horrible. Like to the point where I'll go to the shop to go buy broccoli, for example, and each head of broccoli is in plastic and you know, you get you buy a box of something and everything is individual pieces of plastic. And it's just, it is insane, the amount of plastic you should Also, they what have the hell, sort Korea? of... Yeah, yeah, seriously. Um, there's a reason for it, but yeah. And but even the water, like, you, you can't really drink the tap water here, so you have to drink bottled water. So I've gone through all my time trying not to drink bottled water and then just being, just for a few months in Korea, I've drank more plastic bottles than I could, you know, shake a stick at, and it's disgusting. Um but, you know, it's something I think about a lot because Korea still has big portions of poverty, right? And mm. it's hard to put the pressure of climate change on those individuals who can barely eat, you know, for example. Yep. It's, 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 so these sort of questions of what's good for the individual, what's good economically, what's good for the species, it's difficult to talk about, you know, because it's, it's yep. again, it changes with time and it changes with what population you're dealing with. For sure. We're talking about all these big ideas and potential solutions and you look at the probably the average person. You're like, what do you want Definitely. me to do about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's impossible for them, right? All right, man. Well, um, just to finish off, um, if people want to like what you're talking about, if people want to find out more, uh, whether about straight from a scientist or even about Alzheimer's, what do you recommend they do? Is there any sort of, first of all, your social media? And is there another thing, if they want to learn more about Alzheimer's, is there, is there anything they can look into as well, like books or websites or anything like that? Yeah, um, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm actually putting together a paper um, on Alzheimer's. So you can watch for that. And I will definitely uh, connect everyone with that. So for our social links, I'm most active on Instagram for sure. Mm -hmm. That's at straight from a scientist. I think you, um, I think you know that page, right? Mm -hmm. um, you might know my personal one, which I almost never use. I'm really bad. I've, I've got both. I've got both. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and I think those are all on our website, which is straight from a scientist.com. Um, you can also actually find it. I bought, uh, the domain sfspodcast.com. So straight from the scientist SFS, mm -hmm. that's a little shorter and it'll redirect you. Um, we're on, you know, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, everywhere I can think of, um, mm -hmm. YouTube technically too, auto posts. Um, and then as far as Alzheimer's resources, um, I am, you know, a little bit of shameless plug here, but I have had the opportunity to meet with some of the top experts. Um, uh, like seriously, these, these people are, are awesome in the, in the field of Alzheimer's disease. And, um, I can give the exact link, but if you go to our homepage and then go to the top 
uh, right of the sidebar or the menu, there's a, a featured focus, which is Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have, I think, like seven pot episodes there now. Um, and I'm actually going to be adding more uh, cool. to it as I have uh, an Alzheimer's disease frequently asked questions episode. Um, with Maya Gasilla, who's she's about to enter grad school, but she's been running this all science blog. Mm-hmm. Um, we already have a couple episodes with her. Uh, you can check that out. We're talking about amyloid beta, um, villain or hero, which is kind of this infection hypothesis mm-hmm. idea. Um, so, I mean, there's episodes like 41, 39, 30, 43. There's a ton of them. Um, that's all at that. It's all kind of curated and organized cool. at that top of our sidebar on our homepage. Um, that would be a place I would recommend to start. Obviously a little biased. Um, and then as far as other people, Maya, of course, great resource, all science blog. Uh, and then the people that I'm kind of looking um, for, for my own resources, I mean, I'm just looking straight into the primary literature. So if yep. you have a specific question, feel free to reach out to me again on Instagram. Um, we are on Twitter. That's S from a scientist, just because there's not enough character space for the, uh, um, <laughs> for the full work. Yeah. But um, yeah, we're on there too. Um, I'm on Facebook. I don't check that that much. I try and avoid Facebook for the most part. We just auto post there. Understandable. Um, but yeah, you can. I think Instagram is the best way to reach out to us for sure. Um, and, and website, we have a contact form. Uh, cool. Should that all fail. Yeah. yeah, sounds good. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please subscribe to us. Go to any of our social media accounts or website. Tell your friends, tell your grandparents, do anything you can do in your power to help us out because it will allow us to continue doing this podcast for everybody, which we greatly appreciate. Thank you for the support and see you next time.